Well, it really is a thrilling time to be a deep-thinking Christian. Over the last 50 years or so, there's been a revival of theism among professional philosophers. Today, there are many first-rate philosophers around the world who are making a rigorous and rational case for God at the highest levels of academia. And I'm honored to be joined right now by one of these first-rate philosophers, Dr. Robert Coons. Dr. Coons, welcome to Think for Christ. Thank, thank you, Anthony. Very, very generous introduction. <laughs> well, since it's your first time on the show, would you mind introducing yourself to the Think for Christ community? Sure. Uh, so I teach at the University of Texas in Austin. Been here 36 years now. Um, did my PhD at UCLA. I've done a couple of years at Oxford before that. And uh, mostly I work in, in the area of what, what we call metaphysics in, in philosophy, which is what the world is like and... Uh, things like cause and effect and time and space and so on. But uh, a big part of that is um, it has to do with the existence of God and what God is like, what we can, what philosophy can tell us about the nature of God. So I've very been very interested in that, especially in the last, I guess, 25 years or so. My first paper on this in 1997. Great. Well, for those who may not be familiar with his work, um, Dr. Coons has actually formulated and defended several arguments for the existence of God in the academic literature. But today, for the sake of focus and time, I've asked him to walk us through one argument for God in particular that he has developed um, and called the first cause argument. So Dr. Coons, um, before we wade in here, maybe we can just take a moment to situate this first cause argument in the broader landscape of natural theology. It seems to me that what you're offering here is a formulation or a version of the cosmological argument in the Aristotelian tradition. Now, I've heard you describe the cosmological argument as breaking down into two broad traditions. You have the Aristotelian tradition on the one hand, and then the Kalam tradition on the other. Now, thanks in large part to William Lane Craig, I think people today are probably more familiar with the Kalam cosmological argument than they are with the uh, Aristotelian inspired arguments. So by way of introduction and stage setting, could you say something about the nature of cosmological arguments in general? And then can you help us um, to understand the distinction between the Kalam style argument and the first, uh, the first cause style argument that we're gonna look at here today? Great, yeah, I'll, I'll try to do my best on that. So um, all the cosmological arguments have in common um, the notion of causation, cause and effect. And um, and they um, and, and there are other arguments that do this as well, but that they, they certainly have the form of trying to argue that God has to be posited. We have to we should believe in God as a cause of things that we see around us, the effects that we see around us, as really the ultimate cause, the first cause, something that's, that that uh, himself is not caused by anything, but is the cause of everything else. Um, now, even within that, of course, there are various arguments. So you could you could focus on the fact that the world is is designed, fine tuning, or something mm -hmm. like that. That would point to God as a kind of intelligent cause. Or you might wonder what the cause of morality is, or the cause of knowledge, and those would lead to particular kinds of arguments. But the cosmological sorts of arguments are concerned with the effects in a very very broad general sort of way, namely just that the world is at all, the world exists mm -hmm. uh, in, in a very, again, without narrowing it down to any specific phenomenon within law, just, just the world as we know it. Um, and so that, that gives us the cosmological form of argument. Um, now, as you mentioned, there are within that these two, at least two schools of thought. Um, 
the uh, the terms, the term kalam comes from the Islamic philosophers, although I think it was actually developed by a Christian philosopher named John Philoponus a bit yeah. earlier than before the Islamic period. Um, so the main difference, what's the difference between that and the Aristotelian tradition? Um, the most obvious difference is that the kalam tradition tends to argue this way, that there had to be a beginning to time itself. And therefore, something had to cause the world to begin to exist at that point. And that points us to an eternal cause, and that's God, right? Um, the Aristotelian tradition has traditionally taken the view that we can't really be confident that the world had a beginning in time, that the past might be infinitely long. But even if it were, we still need an ultimate cause, an ultimate explanation for the world as, as we see around it, see, us, see it around us. Um, and that, that um, turns, too, on, on questions about infinite regresses. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, if you take the Kalam tradition, you're going to argue that all any kind of infinite regress is, is, is not allowed. Uh, the Aristotelian is also going to reject infinite regresses, but not necessarily every infinite regress, but only, only certain kinds. And then there's, there's some debate among Aristotelians about which, which kinds are permitted and which aren't. So hopefully we, can, we won't get deep into that, those <laughs> No. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so um, with the first cause argument, we're seeking to demonstrate that there exists a cause that is first in the sense of maybe being prime or ultimate or supreme, a prime, ultimate, supreme cause, right. rather than in the sense of being first in a kind of finite temporal sequence. Is that fair enough? That seems right. That's right. So first in the sense of not itself being caused by anything else. Yeah. No, I know you're the, you're, you're, kind of you're a source. Yeah. Now, I know you're a more the, the more the merrier kind of philosopher, as am mm -hmm. I. And I know that mm -hmm. although Aristotle believed that the universe um, was infinite and uh, eternal, um, and Aquinas didn't think that we could demonstrate that it wasn't, nevertheless, um, I know that you like the Kalam cosmological, cosmological argument, as do I. So, But we'll put that yeah. aside for one moment here. Um, yeah, I think these are incompatible with each other, actually. That's right. They're, 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 they're complementary, I think, strategies. Yeah, right. Great. All right. Well, I appreciate you breaking that down for us. So I'll get out of your way now. If you can just walk us through your preferred formulation of this first cause argument. Right. Okay. So maybe I should back up a little bit and talk about causation. Um, sure. So um, there's there's been certainly some skeptics about causation going back to David Hume uh, in the 18th century. Uh, and in the early 20th century, a lot of philosophers thought that we could do without causation altogether, cause and effect. So when, when, if you tried to push this style of argument around 1950 or so, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the professional philosophical school world uh, that, that who's, what's this causation stuff? We don't, we don't believe in that. Um, that's changed radically now, actually. You, you'll find, you'll, you, it'll be hard pressed to find uh, practicing philosophers who are just skeptics about causation as, as a whole. It's just turned out to be so central to so many projects in philosophy in the last 50 years. Uh, in understanding how knowledge works, how perception works, what the relationship between the mind and body is, what space is, what time is, uh, uh, laws of nature, and and so on. So, so there's there's actually there's not much pushback from that anymore. People agree now that causation is really is really central, and that we have some sort of knowledge about the causal structure of the world. Right. Um, so the question then is, um, what sort of inferences can we make about causation? Right. What sorts of things are caused and what sorts of things are uncaused? Um, now, if, if one took the view that absolutely everything is caused, 
then you get into a contradiction pretty quickly, I think. Right? Because one right. of the things that people tend to agree upon is that if, if A causes B, then in some sense, A and B are separate things, right? They're, they're not, things don't cause themselves. Right. And they don't, and parts of something doesn't cause the whole because then it would be causing itself, right? So, so if, if, when, if two things cause, if one thing causes another, then they're, they're separate in some way. Um, and so if, if something caused absolutely everything, the whole of reality, it would have to be somehow separate from reality, but but then it wouldn't exist, right? And another right. thing that almost everybody agrees upon is that if something's going to be an actual cause, a real causal explanation of things that actually exist, the cause must also actually exist, right? Mm -hmm. Merely possible things uh, or fictional things don't cause anything, right? Um, Superman and the Green Lantern and so on don't cause anything in the real world. They only things that have actual existence do. So, so that means then there's going to be a distinction between those things that are caused and those things that are uncaused, right? Uh, there have to be some things in the world that are uncaused, basically, and those will be the first. Those will be the first causes. That's kind of a very simple sort of argument that already gets us to the conclusion. Right. There's something that's at least uncaused. Now, I prefer a version of this argument that goes a little bit further than that, right? Mm -hmm. That tries to argue that not only is there something that's uncaused, but there's something that's uncausable, something okay. that's even uh, that that is um, obviously uncausable, in fact, uh, almost self-evidently uncausable, that we need something like that. And to get to that principle, well, let's assume that we, I can get to that principle. Let's suppose you, you grant me that. Um, it's obviously a very strong principle. Anything that's causable has a cause, right? Mm -hmm. Not just, not just, the, uh, not just uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that are, are contingent, but, but anything that's causable uh, has a cause. Uh, let's, just, let's assume that we, we grant that for the moment. Okay, then what can we conclude, right? Well, again, we can see that obviously it can't be the case that everything's uncausable because then everything would have a cause. And again, you'd have the total, the totality of reality would have to be caused by something outside reality. So that's not possible. Mm -hmm. So again, you get to the conclusion that there must be something uncausable that then is responsible for causing all the causable things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so again, that moves pretty quickly. Um, I mean, you might say, well, wait a minute. Um, how did you, you get to that result so quickly, right? I mean, couldn't it be the case that, uh, that the causable things are caused, but there's an infinite regress, right? So A is caused mm -hmm. by B, B is caused by C, C is caused by D, and so on ad infinitum, right? And all of them are causable, so we, don't, we never reach an uncausable you know, first cause is, is the idea. Um, so that, that depends on another uh, twist of the screw here. Mm -hmm. um, I'll need a little bit stronger principle then. Really, what I want to say is that anything or any group of things, any plurality of things that are all uncausable or that are all causable have a cause. Right? Uh, so this is what we might call the aggregation strategy, right? So this is, this is, this is the way in which one can avoid go going down the Kalam line if, if, yeah. if one wants to, right? We say, well, even if there are infinite regresses, it doesn't matter because you can still take the whole infinite regress of causable things and ask what causes that whole thing. Now, again, you, one might push back and say, wait a minute, how do you know that the, that the plurality is causable just because the individual links in it are causable? Isn't that the fallacy of composition, right? To say mm -hmm. that just because the right. various parts of the regress are causable, the whole thing is causable. And I think, no, it isn't really, because if you think about it, um, if, if, if I had an infinite regress, A, B, C, D, and so on ad infinitum, each one of those members is, is itself causable, right? then each one could have been caused by something outside the regress. So A could have been caused by A prime B, by B prime C, by C prime, and so on, right? 
and then take A prime, B sine, prime, C time, and so on, that infinite regress, that second infinite regress will now be the cause of the first infinite regress. It will cause every yeah. ember of that. So I've shown that the infinite regress is in fact causable, right? There's no bar to its having a cause. And if we have this very strong principle that says, you know, absolutely everything and even sequences of things that are causable themselves must have a cause, then we would conclude that any infinite regress out there also has to have a cause. Good, yeah. And now just take all the infinite regresses, so to speak, right? They're still gonna have to have a cause. And that cause then will have to be something uncausable finally, right? Because if it were causable, it would just be part of one of those infinite regresses right. and wouldn't be something separate from them. So, so anyway, so, so you can see how roughly how that goes. Now, um, that, that's all assuming a fairly strong principle, right? Of causality, or sometimes it's called the principle of sufficient reason in this context. Okay, do you um, identify the two, or are you going to make a distinction between the PSI well, and the causal principle? In both cases, there's a whole family of things that could be called one or the other. So it's more a matter of nomenclature than anything else, I think. Okay. I, I don't myself prefer the term principle sufficient reason, even though I've published things where that is in the title, yeah. uh, partly because Alex Proust that I'm collaborating with, he does like that name. He uses, yeah. he uses it for a whole book of his. Mm -hmm. uh, and also we, we published in, in a special journal of, of uh, a special issue of philosophical studies dedicated to the principle of sufficient reason. So <laughs> I pretty right. much had to use that terminology there. And I don't, I don't object to it really. I think it's fine too, if, if it's properly understood. Um, because, you know, if one's really trying to find a, a sufficient explanation for the existence of some concrete thing, you're gonna have to appeal to a cause. It's gonna be a cause. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. So, yeah. so it's not a huge difference. The only, the only reason I, I somewhat hesitate using the principle of sufficient reason is that it suggests that the thing that's the cause is sufficient for its effect in the sense that it necessitates the effect. That is, okay. it's impossible for the cause to happen and the effect not also to happen. Right? Yeah. So more of like a Leibnizian version of the principle of sufficient reason. Exactly. That's right. That's yeah. right. And that's a problem, I think, for theism in general, myself. It is. Mm -hmm. Because I want to say that God is the necessary first cause, but that the creation is contingent. Right. So even it's a free granted act. that he exactly. Yeah. So uh, so so therefore I much prefer the idea that a cause can be a, in a certain sense a sufficient explanation for its effect, even if the effect is contingent given the okay. cause, right? So, so, so it God seems is a sufficient like, sorry, explanation for the world, even if the world is contingent, is, is what I would uh, want to say. Okay, great. So the argument is <laughs> is hinging on this causal principle. Whatever is causable right. has a cause. Is that correct? Right, that's right. Okay, so one of the things that you're well known for in the literature is defending this principle. So right. can you give us your arguments for why we need to take this causal principle in hand? Right. Good. So again, um, a number of philosophers in the past um, have have proposed, and I basically agree with them, that this is a, this is a this is a fundamental principle of reason itself, right? That it's just reasonable if you look at something that's causable to say it must have a cause. It it can't just pop into existence um, on its own. So so everything that exists on this view either has a cause, or there's a really good reason why it can't have a cause because it's uncausable, right? <laughs> And sort of obviously uncausable. Everything fits into that. Um, so it's it's a principle really of of rationality, I would say. And so if it's a principle of rationality, that means I can't really deduce it from other principles, right? Because principles are starting points. 
So I think it is something that is that is actually self evident. That is uh, that is like the law of non contradiction that one should just accept sure. uh, on its own terms. But having said that, lots of people don't accept it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that's too bad for them. Um, so <laughs> so what can one do if it's a first principle? Well, you can still argue dialectically. That is, you can say, okay, suppose it were false. What would follow? And then you can sort of hope that the things that will follow will be so disastrous that those who aren't accepting this principle will realize, oh, wait a minute, it is yeah. a first principle after all. I, I must have made a mistake somewhere. So that's that's sort of the the strategy, right? It's a it's a it's an attempt to help the uh, uh, cognitively uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> disabled here, uh, who for some reason are not seeing the self evidence of, of this. Principle. And I just want to say, I, it's difficult when you have a principle that just seems self evident because. Yeah, it's more obviously true than anything that you could say in support right. of it. Exactly. So really, really, the only way that you can demonstrate, well, you can't demonstrate a first principle, all you can really right. do is demonstrate it indirectly, you can't demonstrate it directly. Exactly. And that's through through a method of proof called reductio ad absurdum, which you're explaining here. So exactly, just what I was going to say here. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and so, um, so I can't. I'm not. I'm not claiming. Look, this is how you know that the PSR is true because yeah. of this complicated argument. It's rather uh, here's here's why you better not reject the PSR. Right. Uh, you should accept it as as obvious um, because of the consequences. Now, the, the 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 line that I've taken pretty consistently is that if you don't accept the PSR, the result is some kind of global skepticism. Mm-hmm. So the consequences are in the in the realm of what we call epistemology in philosophy. That is the the theory of knowledge. There, there'll be lots of things that you don't know or that you can't know that you know if you don't uh, accept as obviously true the, the principle of sufficient reason. So of course, you know, that does leave an out for the, for the uh, agnostic or the, or the atheist. They can, they can just say, yeah, I don't know anything at all. Or just skeptic. <laughs> yeah, they can embrace all, all skepticism. <laughs> but we don't find that very often, actually, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the major sort of famous atheists and internet atheists and so on, you know, don't want to admit they don't know anything. They think they know no. an awful lot of things, right? And they have reasons uh, for rejecting this argument. That's right, exactly. So, so dialectically, it's if it works, it's a pretty good strategy, I think, yeah. against against the kind of atheists that, that we find out there. So, uh, so let's see. So, what are the, what are the consequences of a world in which um, things can happen, even just ordinary causable things can happen without a cause, right? Well, it means, of course, that at least it's metaphysically possible, right? <laughs> that all kinds of things would just pop into existence uh, with no explanation whatsoever, right? Um, black holes or stars or human beings or hippopotamuses or whatever you can imagine, <laughs> um, you know, in, in, in a world like that might just start existing, might just come into being uh, for no reason whatsoever because um, in that world we're, we're, we're supposing that um, there's no requirement that possible things have an actual cause. So already that's that's problematic, I think. And um, I mean, Alex Proust that I've collaborated with, he he has an article back in 2017 where he points, where he shows that um, any kind of knowledge of the future or any knowledge that involves probabilities, um, statistical inferences are going to be undermined here. So um, why is that? Well, if the PSR is is false, if things can just happen without a cause, then it actually turns out to be the really it turns out to be impossible to assign a probability to any event, right? 
So I take I take a simple case. I've, I've got a, a fair coin. I'm going to flip it, right? And I want to say it's got a 50% chance of going up heads, ending heads, and 50% tails. But now I've got to imagine, well, wait, there could be a world in which suddenly after I flip the coin, uh, I don't know, a black hole appears out of nowhere and sucks the coin up into it or, or you know, or whatever. So that... Um, so there's a probability now that it won't. Uh, uh, well, there's there's a, there's the possibility, right, mm -hmm. of some completely different event occurring, right? Um, and the only way I can say it's still got a fifty percent chance, roughly a fifty percent chance of heads and fifty percent chance of tails, is to say that the probability of such an uncaused event is basically zero or, or nearly yeah. zero, right? But how can I say that, right? To to assign a probability to, to an event is to look to the causes of that event and to describe those causes and figure out what powers and dispositions they have that would produce the resulting probability, right? That's why we can talk about the coin having a 50% chance of coming up heads because we can look at the cause of the, of the coin flip, the way in which I flip it, the structure of the coin, the atmosphere it flows through and so on. It's those causal factors that together uh, assign a definite probability to it. If we're talking right. about an uncaused event, there's no way to assign any probability to it. It's got, it's got an undefined probability. And if I've got the possibility of undefined probability, events of undefined probability occurring all the time everywhere, that just undermines all probability, sure. all objective probability, right? Um, and that's really bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if, thing, means... if things can just pop into existence from nothing, then what you're saying here is that there's no way for us to say that that scenario is unlikely Right, because exactly. there's no way to even possibly measure the probability of that scenario because it would be inscrutable. Exactly right. That's right. Yeah. The probability depends on causes, so uncaused things have no probability, almost by definition. Yeah, and uh, and therefore, the, if they have no probability, that you can't say they're unlikely. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah, and that and that just and then if but if uncaused events can happen that are un that have no probability, then the things that they would have that they would affect. The things that the, the effects that they would have also have no probability as well, mm -hmm. and that's everything ultimately. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we end up with, with no probabilities, and so that's pretty bad. I mean, I can't, I can't have any confidence that the sun will rise tomorrow, right? Because uh, there's this, you know, a black hole could absorb the sun right now. There's no way to assign a probability to this new black hole appearing out of nowhere. So, uh, so it has an undefined probability. And that means that all the inferences that you, that you make in science based on statistical inferences um, are falsified, right? Because you can't, in fact, say that if this, if this drug were actually to cure this disease, uh, the probability would be that we'd see a certain statistical profile. Yeah. Because that depends, again, on probability and we're undermining probability at that point, right? And it, so would, ruin, it would ruin the whole the whole reasoning avenue of inference to the best explanation, right? Because yes, there'd be right. like a complete inability to estimate the likelihood of alternative hypothesis if things could That's just right. pop into existence from nothing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All statistical inference involves looking at hypotheses that are hypotheses about the objective chances in yeah. the world, right? Yeah. But now we're admitting there are no objective chances in the world, right? Because of the failure of the PSR. And so all those hypotheses would just be false to start up yes. with. And so there'd be no way to test anything statistically. So that's pretty bad, right? It's <laughs> but it's even bad. worse than that. It's even worse than that, I think. Um, because, um, uh, you know, if... Um, and this this part of the argument depends on my assuming that we 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 not only have some knowledge, but that we know we have at least some knowledge okay. about the world empirically. So I know that uh, I'm holding a pencil in my hand, 
And I know that I know that I'm having a pencil, right? It's it's not a borderline case of knowledge where it's really, uh, maybe I know it, but it's so tenuously know it that I can't really know that I know it. If I know anything at all, I know that there's a pencil in my hand, right? It's, it's pretty secure. And so that seems, again, pretty reasonable to assume. Now, um, if I don't know that the P PSR is true, right, then, um, then I have to admit that as far as I know, it's possible for the sensations I'm experiencing right now to occur without any cause whatsoever. Yeah. So there's a, there's a possible world where I'm feeling like I'm holding a pencil, right? And in fact, those feelings are not caused by anything, right? They mm -hmm. just pop into existence in my brain without any cause. And in those worlds, even if I'm actually holding a pencil, I don't actually know that I'm holding a pencil, right? Because in order to know that I'm holding a pencil, the, the beliefs that I have formed have to be formed reliably in that world, in a way that's reliably connected to the actual existence of the pencil. But reliabilities also have to, has to do with probabilities, right? So if there are no probabilities, then there's no such thing as reliability. And there's no such thing as reliability, then none of my, none of my beliefs or perceptions can be reliable and therefore they can't be knowledge. And so I don't actually know anything uh, by, by means of sensation, perception, memory, testimony, any of those things, because all of those require reliable mechanisms. Right. And all of those are undermined if the PSR turns out to be false. I can't know that I have reliable mechanisms at work uh, if PSR is false, because if the PSR is false, then there's no such thing as reliability. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> a global kind of skepticism just seems to be entailed by the denial of the PSR, by uh, a principle of causality here. But we can also run a, a modus tollens on this, right? right? If the causal principle were false, then we would not know any empirical truths. But right. we, all, we all do know empirical truths. Right. Therefore, the exactly. causal principle has to be true. That's right. That's the structure of the argument. Yeah. Exactly. Can we push this even further? Um, I've seen some philosophers do this. Can we say that it's not just empirical perceptual knowledge that's threatened by the rejection of the causal principle, but that any kind of rational inquiry more generally is threatened if we reject the causal principle? I yeah. mean, in the process of reasoning, right, we move from premises to a conclusion where the premises act as reasons for us believing the conclusion. I mean, maybe not technically causes, but they're reasons. We, yeah. we take this reason and this reason and together we believe uh, on the basis of these, we believe this conclusion. Now, if things can pop into existence, if there is no causal principle, then who's to say that this belief that I have just popped into existence in my brain and it popped into existence with the appearance of having been believed for a certain amount of reasons. Like right. what's to stop that scenario from happening? Well, that's, I think that's right. Because if you, you know, I'm, you may remember I mentioned memory as one of the things that yeah. goes, right? And so if I don't know anything by memory, I don't, I don't really know what inferential steps I've just made in, mm. in reaching this proof, right? And so, yeah, so it does seem to undermine my confidence in any extended proof anyway. Maybe an immediate uh, perception I have of, of Q falling from P or something, right? So I see that, um, you know, if I'm holding a pencil and it's Monday, then it's Monday, right? And maybe yeah. I can just see that inference, right, and still be confident of that. But then if I go on and use that in some longer proof, then you're right, I'm going to be I'm going to be in some trouble. There's also there's also the worry about um, even the seeing, right? So so suppose I see that two plus two is four. Um, 
I mean, okay. The reason I don't go this way is that there's yeah, not really cons there's not a consensus about about our knowledge of things like mathematics or other kinds of pure. Would that uh, be intuitive knowledge? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So there's no there's no real consensus as to how intuitive knowledge works. Okay. My own view is that it does involve some kind of causation. That in order for me to see intuitively that two plus two is four. There has to be a kind of causal connection of a kind, or at least an explanatory connection of a kind between the fact that two plus two is four and my right. perception of it. Um, and so, if that's the case, then that also would fall into the into the same epistemologic black hole here. Right. Uh, once the PSR is gone, but that's somewhat controversial. I mean, some people will say, "No, you don't really need any kind of causation here. Um, it's just some kind of self." Okay. Because I've seen other philosophers like um, Ed Fazer actually argument argues that if you reject the causal principle, he's arguing actually for the PSR more broadly. Yeah. If you do that, then any rational rejection of the PSR would be self-undermining at that point because you'd have an undercutting defeater for any rational basis for doubting the principle of sufficient reason or the causal principle. Um, so I've seen some people make that argument. Yeah, I, I'd be a little. I, I, I'd be worried. That's a bit of a bridge too far, maybe. To a little uh, hesitant. Argument. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, in any case, in any case, I'm not sure I have to go that far. I mean, it looks like the the, the problems are already great enough. Yeah, the skeptic but, is uh, pretty screwed. Yeah, at this point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't. Again, you know, the Richard Dawkins of the world are not going to say, "Oh, well, you know, tech with empirical knowledge." Then uh, no, they're not going to give up on that. So, uh, so yeah, because the one thing that, good. like as you said, the thing that goes if the, if a causal principle goes, then there goes science. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and none of the, you know, skeptics about this argument are going to want to give up, want to give up science, God forbid. So yeah, I think that's right. Okay, great. Is there anything else you want to say about the causal principle before maybe we can consider some objections to the causal principle? Yeah, well, the other thing that we haven't really talked about at all is, um, I mean, is the sort of so what worry, right, which is, okay, suppose that you do get some uncausable first cause. You know, well, I think that's God. Um, okay, I mean, I so the gap, shown, I the gap problem. The gap problem, right. I haven't yeah. shown there's only one of them, for instance. I mean, there could be a zillion sure. of them as far as this argument shows. Us. Sure, sure. And, uh, and you know, it doesn't. so there's a lot between that and, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, right? Um, okay, well, so, we can go there. Yeah, we can go straight yeah, there if you want That's to. a lot. That's a lot. I mean, I think that this is why I prefer putting it in terms of causability. And I would say even it has to be self-evident causability because... Suppose, suppose you thought that, um, look, there are some things that are uncausable, but they're just sort of uncausable as a brute fact, right? Mm -hmm. So the Big Bang happened. It's not only uncaused, it's uncausable. Why? It just is. It's just kind of a brute fact that it's uncausable. That won't really help, right? Because, um, again, um, uh, I don't, well, I don't now know that my own perceptions aren't in that uncausable as a brute fact kind of camp, right? And so again, they might be uncaused, even though I don't know it, um, because they have this kind of root facty kind of uncausability. Right? Yeah. So, so I think the, the going this way, giving this sort of epistemological version of the argument, forces you to say that the only exception, the only kind of things that don't have causes, are things that are self-evidently uncausable, by the very nature okay. of uncausable. And that gives you some purchase then that you can use, I think, to argue, for instance that such a being would have to be necessary, necessary in itself, couldn't really be contingent, because contingent things seem, you know, 
possibly causable, right? <laughs> it's conceivable sure. that they're caused because they could have failed to exist. And so something could have sure. caused them to exist. Uh, also, I think things that are limited in some way, uh, where, where they have a, a limit with respect to some continuum of, of measurement, right? So a being that has, a, that's a material being, let's say, that has a boundary in space, right? Um, finite boundary in space. Um, that doesn't seem to be uncausable because you could always ask, well, what caused it to have exactly that volume and shape rather than one that's slightly bigger or smaller or you know, slightly distorted? It looks like those are the sorts of things that you might expect to find a cause for. Yeah. And so an uncausable being, it seems, would have to be um, unlimited in space, let's say, and, and in time as well, um, and necessary. So all that sort of pushing you in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, one of the harder things to prove is that there's only one of them. That that takes quite a bit of work. Um, uh, so, um, but I, but here, I mean, you could appeal to a kind of Occam's razor principle here that there's really any need for more than one, and so why posit more than one if we don't have to? to really rule out the possibility of multiple gods is take some work. Sure. And at this point, we're unpacking, we're just doing a philosophical analysis on what it means to be an uncausable cause, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so at this right. point of the argument, that's what we're doing. Um, yeah. Alex Proust says that he thinks that um, the most important part of the gap problem, which is what we've been talking about, is the question of whether the first cause is an agent. Would you agree with him on that? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you mean by agent. So, um, you know, the word agent can just mean cause, really. And so that, okay. that's, not, that's not controversial. So I think there he means something like uh, intelligent agent or uh, intentional, okay. yeah. acting, something that acts intentionally. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely a, a problem. Um, so I've just been working recently uh, with my colleague Dan Bonavac on a, a book on, on Aquinas' Five Ways, which is part of this kind of strategy. And the fifth way is the one where he talks about this, the idea that the first cause would be uh, intelligent, uh, rational in some sense. And I, we've got a slightly different interpretation of this than most people. So I take the fifth way to be concerned exclusively with the gap problem, right? So I take the fifth way to be saying, okay, let's grant that there's an uncausable first cause, right? Mm -hmm. Does it follow that that is, is intelligent? And what Thomas there is arguing is that if it were an unintelligent being, right, then you'd have to ask, well, why is it disposed to act the way it does? What disposes it to cause this sort of world and that sort of world, right? Or maybe what disposes it to have act with certain probabilities? Why is it probable, probably going to do this or probably do that? Well, it must be because it has some kind of internal set of dispositions or tendencies, right? But they're going to be finite tendencies in some sense, right? They're going to be a tendency to create a certain kind of world with a 48% chance and another kind of world with a 10, 12% chance. So they have to be caused. So they have to be caused, exactly. Yeah. So, so therefore, what sort of cause, right, would be able to act without any such causable internal propensities? And I think the answer is only a being that does things simply because they're good to do. Hmm. So now it's not caused to do one thing or another, except if you might want to say it, 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 it's, it's, its actions are only explained by the goodness of the thing it does, which is not itself uh, a, a, a cause really of the intelligent agents. The reason. The reason rather than a cause, yeah. that's right. So only a being that's acting purely from reason, purely from reason, 
right? Unlike you and me, right? Where we act partly sometimes for reasons, but mostly we have right. urges <laughs> and, and, and so on, right? That are interfering with our, with our rationality. So only a being that acts purely, freely on the basis of reason alone could be said to be uncaused in this respect. And so that's, that's the, uh, I think that's the best strategy to. Yeah, that's good. I like how you bring the Aquinas' fifth way in there. Mm -hmm. And and in the Summa Theologica, Aquinas has one chapter, basically, well, one, one part of one chapter dedicated to the uh, arguments for God. And then he has what, something like a hundred chapters afterwards that deals with the so-called gap problem. And I would, uh, would, it depends on, yeah, there's a question of where to cut that off. I would say probably at least 20, let's say at least 20 of the questions. Yeah, because some of that deals with the Trinity and so forth. Yeah. Well, right. And then of course, yeah. So, you know, so in the Summa, there are parts, then the parts are made up of questions. The questions are made up of articles. So, right. So I haven't actually sat down and counted how many articles are, but there must be about a hundred. You're probably right. Yeah. uh, Dealing with it, with the problem. So it is. It's one of the, my main complaints with with people like Richard Dawkins and others who who talk about the five ways and spend a page and a half on it and say, right. okay, even granted these things work, that isn't God, and then they move on as exactly. if as if Thomas was not aware of the fact that this hadn't proven God's existence yet, and that he that he had you know as I say a hundred or so articles afterwards to try to very carefully, methodically, rigorously uh, fill in that gap. Yeah. So what's your assessment? I mean, you've you've been offering arguments like this for a while now. Um, academically, what is your assessment of the landscape? Are most people accepting what we can call the stage one side of this argument, where we're using the causal principle to show that there has to be something that is uncausable? Are we are we mostly getting hung up on the gap problem now? That's stage two, or, or where do you where do you think we are? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say they, obviously in philosophy you're never going to get a consensus on something like yeah. this. I don't think, at least not not these days. So there are plenty of people who are still resisting on stage one, but um, but a lot of people I think are more or less conceding stage one now and focusing more on on the gap problem. Yeah, so, so I think that's what I it seems that, to me as I well. I think that to be a lot of progress actually. I mean, when I first started working on this in in ninety seven, um, I mean, even Christians looked at me with the, the incredulous <laughs> stare when I said I was going to try to prove God's existence. I said, "No, come on, that's not yeah. going to work." Uh, and 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 now uh, that I think is to gain a certain amount of respectability. Okay. Well, I personally, after reading through many formulations of this kind of first cause argument, including the ones that you have in print, I personally find this to be very powerful, extremely compelling, high cost for doubting. You know the, the principle that's at work here, as we demonstrated. Um, yeah. So let me just. T- I mean, you care, I might mention work of Alex Proust and Josh Alex Rasmussen, and Josh Jeff, Rasmussen yep. and so on. They've they've been very patiently closing off all the avenues that you might try to use to escape. Yes, this yes, they are both excellent. Yeah. Um, so we can consider. You've already considered actually a bunch of objection, objections. Have you been presenting the argument? But yeah. let me just ask you, ask you this: yeah. um, two questions. They might have the same answer. What is number one, the most common objection that you encounter when you give this argument? And number two, what do you think personally is the most powerful objection to the argument? Uh, yeah, let's see. I try to think what, what the most common. I mean, I don't know if that there is a one that's most common. You tend to get a kind of scattershot of responses. Um, I suppose... Um, I suppose that most people would go to the gap problem as the biggest problem. Really? Um, at this stage, yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you, get a, you get a lot of objections still. I mean, you do, you do find people that, 
I do find people that will give up some of their um, in, their their realism about empirical knowledge, at least for the time being, right? <laughs> <laughs> Until you remind them, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> you really want to right. go there? Well, no, I guess not. The, the, the tendency sometimes to retreat to a kind of pragmatism. Uh, okay. And say, yeah. Okay, maybe we don't really know anything, but it's still practical to believe in science. And I think that's not a very plausible way to go because, I mean, even to know that, that it's pra pragmatically useful to believe in science, you have to know a lot of things about the consequences of practicing sure. science. So seems like you would so, be relying on empirical knowledge. You would be, yeah, exactly. So not really, not really an escape route. Um, so let's see, what, what do I think is the most uh, significant problem? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, the perhaps the the uh, the two quoque sort of problem that is, um, how how do we how can we explain things like God's freely creating the world uh, mm. if uh, if I have to say that uh, that I mean I have to say well right so there's there's a sort of there's an objection I think James Ross comes up with this objection first um, so if you say okay so God is the first cause uncaused and so God has to cause or create the world right what about God's causing the world right does mm -hmm. that have a cause or not and well it has to be contingent right because uh, god didn't have to cause the world so now it looks like god's causing the world has to have a cause so now you've got to have god causing that he caused the world but then there's another causing that he has to cause so you get an infinite regress basically is the worry um so i've, I've of course i dealt with that one already in in 97. um i mean i think the answer there is to say that that god's causing the world is not some further fact over and above god and the world it's just noting that there's this relationship between the world and God, namely that he's the cause of it. So if you want to say, you know, what does God's causing the world refer to? I want to say it really just refers to the world, right? Yeah. And so, uh, and so therefore that God is the cause of the world is already God is the cause of his causing the world because that's basically just the same thing. So it's a, there's an infinite regress of, of terms you could use to refer to the world but it's not an infinite regress of, of things that are being caused. Right? It's just right. the one thing, the world that's being caused in that case. Yeah, so when God causes an effect, there aren't like three things on the scene, God, right. the effect, and then the act of causing right. the effect. There's just God and the effect with some kind of a dependence relation on God. Right, right, oh. yeah, that's right. Um, I guess the other issue um, has to do with, um, so if, if God is uncausable, then that does push us towards, I think, some pretty strong doctrine of simplicity. God, good. That uh, God doesn't. Yeah, no, it's fine with me too. <laughs> but um, but then then again, folks have some difficulties with that. So if God is yeah. absolutely simple, how, for example, does He know contingent facts about the world? Right. Um, it looks as though He'd have to be different somehow in worlds where I exist, as compared to worlds where I don't exist. If he's going to know that I exist in these worlds and not others, but if he's different, then won't that require him to have some kind of internal complexity that um, there's some I don't know token something in his brain or whatever that that represents me uh, yeah. that's absent when I don't exist and is present when I do exist. So uh, so that I think uh, does raise some interesting questions about the nature of of knowledge itself, um, and I, I think that the mistake here is thinking that in order to know something, you have to represent the thing inside yourself in some way. I mean, we do that a lot, 
obviously. So if I if I know there's a building out there with a with a observatory on top of it, it's because there's some kind of internal representation in my brain of the building that I'm looking at, right? But um, but there are other cases where I think that's not the case, right? So if I if I know that I'm being that I've got a kind of reddish sense experience right now, so I look at my uh, whiteboard with the red on it. Um, I don't know that by representing my internal experience another time again inside my brain with another representation of the internal experience. Because again, you get an infinite regress. I'd have to have mm -hmm. representations of representations and so on. There's some things I just know like immediately just by, by having the experience. And so in the same way, I think we want to say that God knows the things that are contingent just by causing them to exist. Right. Uh, he doesn't have to represent them inside himself again. He just causes them and in causing them, he knows it. Um, Elizabeth Anscombe referred to this once as, uh, more generally, as, as what she called executive knowledge. Executive so knowledge. So if, if a dancer mm -hmm. knows where her feet are at a particular instant, it may not be because she's got an internal representation inside her brain of where her feet are. It's just because she put her feet there, right, right. at that moment. So uh, that's how that's how she that's the kind of knowledge that that God would have to have in this particular case. Yeah. So God knows because He knows what He's doing. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. He knows what he's, he knows what he's causing. Doesn't right. require any kind of inter internal uh, thing. And I likewise, right. yeah. you know, he doesn't, and he and he can do things intentionally, just because they're good to do, not because mm -hmm. he's made a prior decision or prior recognition that they're good and then acted on the basis of that. Uh, so again, I mean, that's not the way we work typically. Well, doesn't Elizabeth Anscombe also argue that intention yeah. is also in the act? Well, that's right. Yeah, I was just gonna. In fact, I was gonna mention that. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're, uh, you don't really need me. You can you can just interview yourself. <laughs> no, no, I need you. You're Trust really me. on top of this stuff. Uh, that's exactly right. Because you'd have the same problem. In fact, um, Roderick Chisholm, who was one of the early developers of of a theory of free will that's called agent causation, very popular mm -hmm. view. Um, he he encountered this sort of problem. He thought, well, in order to freely decide something, I've got to first decide to decide that, right? And I've got to do right. that freely. Well, wait, that means I have to first decide to decide to decide to decide. Infinite regress. And he, regress. Said, and he right. said, that's fine. So he, he actually embraced the infinite regress. He thought every time I act, there's actually an infinite number of, of choices involved. <laughs> well, I think that was a mistake on his part. <laughs> he should yeah. have said, which is what Anscombe said, is that no, sometimes you can just choose to do something without a prior intention to do that thing. You're just doing it intentionally, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's what God does. He just does. He creates the world intentionally. He didn't have a prior intention inside of him that then expresses itself uh, in, in the creation. Very good. So this kind of staves off the modal collapse kind of arguments. Exactly. exactly. Um, and I think, we have we said a little bit about modal fatalism? I mean, the idea that if you have a necessary cause yeah. and you're going to have a necessary fact as an explanation of a, like a conjunct of all the contingent facts. It seems like the right. necessity of the cause is going to bleed over into this contingent right. conjunct. I mentioned it very briefly when I said at the beginning why I didn't, why I wasn't keen on the word sufficient reason, because yes. it suggested right. yeah. exactly this. It suggested that the cause, if you have a cause, then, the, then necessarily the effect must follow. Mm -hmm. um, again, Anson talks about this in her book, her paper on determinism, determinism, uh, causation and determinability, uh, where she, uh, or causality and determinability, I forget the exact title, but but she she makes the point that starting with Leibniz mostly, people got this idea that if you have a cause, the effect necessarily must follow. Uh -huh. And she says, that's not our common sense view of causation, actually. And in fact, there's no particularly good reason to believe that. 
Um, what you can say is that if you have a cause, then the effect might effect, might follow, right? Right. But uh, it's possible now the effect will follow, but it doesn't have to follow, right? I mean, if I if I say something rude and and, and my wife gets angry, right? Um, it doesn't have to. I could say I caused her to get angry. It doesn't follow that I have to claim that every time I say something rude to her, she gets angry necessarily, because maybe mm -hmm. she won't sometimes, right? But sometimes she will. Uh, so uh, so that's that's enough to give us a causal connection, right? Uh, you don't have to assume that it's necessary. So likewise, God is the cause of the creation. It doesn't follow that given God, the creation must happen. It just Yeah, so if, if we appeal to God as an explanation, we don't have to say that um, that an explanation requires something like logical entailment. But, exactly. But rather, I have people, I think Alex Proust calls uh, the principle of sufficient reason the principle of good enough explanation. Yeah. Uh, or the principle of adequate explanation, or yeah. we could just say that the cause has to make the effect intelligible. I mean, that's one right. way I've seen it said too. That's right. That's right. Those are all good ways to put it. Exactly. Yeah. So that, right. yeah, a principle of adequate reason might be better in some ways than the principle of sufficient reason, just because it um, clarifies this point. Right. Yeah. All right. We've um, really covered a lot. Um, what yeah. about this? Did I mean, we... I should say something about quantum mechanics just real yes. briefly. Yes, yes. Because that's the point where people say, ah, here's here's a case where science shows us there's no causation, right? So therefore, right. Good. Uh, therefore it's no good. Uh, so again, th it actually deals with the point we're just making, right? Which is, at most, what quantum mechanics shows us is that there's failures of determinism in the physical world. That is, there are cases where some physical event occurs and, the, and another thing happens, but not with 100% probability, but with only a 50% probability or 20% or whatever, right? But that doesn't show that there's no causation, right? So uh, so I have the radium atom, it sits around and then, it, and then it decays at some point, right? And I can't predict exactly when it's going to decay. So there's nothing about the structure of the nucleus maybe, right? That determines that it's going to decay at exactly this moment rather than some other time. But there's still something there, namely a nucleus <laughs> with a very <laughs> definite propensity to decay and yeah. that propensity to decay expresses itself at a certain point, so that's cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So in fact, in fact, I would argue that quantum mechanics, far from having eliminated causation from, from nature, it actually highlights the role of causation in the physical world. You, if, if, you didn't, if you went back before the quantum mechanical revolution to purely Newtonian world, you might actually get yourself into a frame of mind where you think there's no real causation in nature. There's just stuff acting according to laws, right? And it doesn't really make sense to say this event causes that event. Yeah. But in, in quantum mechanics, at least under most interpretations, you do get cases where something is causing something else to do something at a particular moment, moment yeah. in time. So, um, so actually, I think it's, 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 quantum mechanics is, is, is on our side rather than the other side here. Yeah, because I think I've heard you say it before. It, it reintroduces the notion of potentiality back yeah. into the world. That's right. Yeah. So, so you can always ask, well, what's actualizing this particular potentiality? And there's, there's always going to be some answer to that question. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, people, you know, again, people sort of confuse things like um, virtual particles appearing in a vacuum. They say, okay, there you go, no causation. But a quantum vacuum is not a nothing, right? The That's quantum right. vacuum is is a is a physical structure of a certain kind, mm -hmm. right? With certain propensities, which which yeah. manifest themselves in virtual particles in certain cases. So this, that's still that's definitely cause and effect. But you get this is this is relevant to the column type stuff too, where people think, oh, you know, maybe the universe popped out of some quantum foam. Um, well, fine. There's still a cause then, right? Uh -huh. uh, you yeah. haven't you haven't uh, eliminated the cause at all, uh, even if the quantum foam is in some sense a vacuum. Let's say that doesn't mean it's nothing.
Right. That's right. It's something. It might yeah, be some exactly. exotic thing, but it's not right. a lack right. of everything. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. See, physicists always getting confused here. They get no. confused about that, right? Some of them think that if, if it has zero mass energy, it's therefore nothing. That doesn't follow. Right? No. Let me throw um, an objection that I've actually had um, given to me when I've talked around this argument with people. It's, I would consider it like a Kantian objection. Mm -hmm. um, how can we possibly know that our rational equipment is up to the task of cosmological reasoning or reasoning about yeah. things that go beyond the immediate experiences or, um, you know, our immediate sensory environment? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I guess, again, the proof's in the pudding here, right? Um, so, so, again, the argument is that unless, unless you believe that, that it is up to that task, right, then you're going to lose not only natural theology, but all of science, right? Okay. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're willing to go that route, and, and in a certain way of thinking about Kant, you might say that is what he's trying to argue, that we, in a certain sense we should give up on science as a way of knowing about the world, right? It's mm -hmm. just... It's just a way of organizing our perceptions or something like that, perhaps. That's, that's one way to think about what he's doing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that um, I think you, you end up losing a lot more than you might think you would lose. Um, I'm trying to think there's a better way to put this. Um, I mean, there's the point that, um, that Hegel makes against Kant, which I think is a pretty good one, which is that Kant is trying to argue that there are certain inherent limits to what human knowledge can reach, right? Human knowledge can go this far and no further, right? But to know that, you have to be able to step, look down from above and see, That's here's right. a limit, and out there is stuff we can't know, right? But yeah. then you're knowing something about that stuff, namely that we can't know it. And so there's, a, there's really an, a self-contradiction in the attempt to put, an, put a prior limit to what human knowledge can reach. Yeah, really good, yeah. Um, all right, well, have we? you think we've said enough about this retort that maybe there's just bruteness maybe there's just um maybe the first physical event just popped into existence without a cause but perhaps everything else has a cause so that we can preserve yeah. we can preserve um some of the of the of the principle of causality most of the principle of causality we just have to make an exception for maybe the first event or maybe the fundamental layer of reality maybe just there's some physical simples that are just brute facts but everything else is um we can run the causal principle and everything else except for these first things. What do you think right. about that? Yeah, right, right. So, um, so one might try to do something like this. One might try to say um, uh, that things that happen at the very beginning of time, uh, if, if you think there is a Big Bang in the beginning of time, those are the sorts of things that are uncausable, right? And uh, everything else has to have a cause. So um, uh, that's one way out. Another way out would be to say, um, any series of events that that has an infinite regress in it is the sort of thing that can't be caused, right? Or or shouldn't needn't be needn't be thought of as, as having a cause, and so we could start start there. And yeah, my my, I mean, there are a number of things I could say about that, but the, the the bottom line I think is that none of those will be sufficient to avoid the kind of skepticism that I'm worried about, because. Um, I mean, here I am, I've got these memories, I've got these sense perceptions, I've got to ask myself, is it possible for all I know that these things exist in an uncaused way? And now mm -hmm. I have to ask myself, well, is it possible for all I know that these sensations and memories are existing at the very beginning of time? Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, since I don't, at this point, I can't appeal to any empirical knowledge to say that there's billions of years before this. As far as I know, this could be the very first instant of time, which means these could be uncaused events, right? 
or similarly, you know, how do I know that my present perceptions aren't don't encompass an infinite regress? So there's a there's a sensation caused by another sensation caused by another sensation, and so on, all the same moment in time, so to speak, uh, but but going back infinitely far. Well, I don't know that, right? So therefore, um, again, these sensations and memories could, for all I know, be uncaused, because they're not they're not obviously uncausable, right? And therefore, because they're not obviously uncausable, I should assume that they're caused, right? But then likewise, things that exist at the first moment of time are not obviously uncausable, or things that involve infinite regresses are not obviously uncausable. So, so therefore, we should apply the causal principle to them as well. So the idea is that it, it does, I think, rule out any kind of root uncausedness in the world, right? Yeah. Wherever there's, an un, wherever there's something that's not caused, there should be a sort of evident explanation as to why that sort of thing couldn't be caused. Yeah. And I and suppose that it gets us on the path towards God. Yeah. And I suppose a skeptic, I mean, a skeptic can always reject an argument simply by denying one of the premises or even just denying the yeah. conclusion. So you can always just stick your head in the sand and just say, no, there's brute facts, brute facts. But question yeah, is, I mean, are, you we, can't, are we reasoning it's, now? Or It's a free country. You can't, I mean, you can't force somebody to do metaphysics at all. So that's another that's option. That's right. They could just that's say, right. you know, they could just say, ah, I just don't have any trust in the reliability of this kind of reasoning at all and just go yeah. away. Yeah. I mean, you can do that, but uh, I, I actually get that response a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's maybe a variation on the Hume Kant kind of response, right? Which is, ah, you know, I, I just think that human beings trying to uncover things like this rationally, they're just trying to go, we're just going too far. So, you know, I'm just not even going to bother thinking through the arguments mm -hmm. that I just, there must be something wrong there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, that's not a totally crazy response, I think, except for the fact that, um, you know, nearly all human beings have had some kind of sense of a, of a great ultimate thing out there. Mm -hmm. right? And, and so, uh, and so it's not as though these metaphysical results are completely novel and unexpected given our, our background, right? So again, I guess what I'm saying here is that you know, if you're going to be this kind of uh, you know, common sense philosopher, let's say, who doesn't want to get carried away by metaphysical speculations, then your common sense should include the common sense of common people. <laughs> That's is, right. There's a God yeah. who made the world and, and so yeah. on, right? Um, right? So if you're going to say, no, no, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to trust that because I've got some sophisticated philosophical argument that somehow undermines it, well, then you're doing the metaphysics, right? So you can't that's you can't right anymore. Yeah. So if you say if and if you make the claim that somehow we're not able to really think about these things, presumably you have a reason for making that claim. And here we are back again on the defense of the causal principle and and right. uh, the skepticism that looms if you deny it. So yeah, there's that too. I mean, you could always <laughs> argue. I think Aristotle says this somewhere that if you reject metaphysics, you're already doing metaphysics. That's right. There's, you can't reject it without doing it. Yeah. Right. Well, Dr. Coons, uh, we are just about out of time. Um, yeah. But before we go, um, could you tell us where people can go to access your work? Yeah, so I do have a website, robcoons.net, and um, I've got links there to a lot of my papers. Um, and then I've also got a, um, if you go to that website, you can also find my blog. And I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to get into the habit of posting every week, at least there. So, oh, okay. So that's to keep an eye on that. To, yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, Think for Christ. It has been an absolute pleasure. Great. Well, it's been my pleasure too. Thanks a lot.